the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 24, includes a lot of detailed instructions from God to Moses. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hairs, tanned rim skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense onyx stones and stones for setting the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside, shall you overlay it. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work that you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another, toward the mercy seat shall be the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment of the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the trim. 
And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame that the rings shall lie as holders of the poles to carry the table. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, and you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, we are, are going to be continuing on in our series that we resumed on the Old Testament book of Exodus, uh, which uh, Ted read for us uh, just a moment ago. Let me just pray, and then uh, we're going to dive in. Father, we, uh, we come before you. Uh, we thank you that, that you are present with us, um, that you, you send us your, your spirit to guide us. And so we ask that as we look into your word this morning, that you would meet us, um, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us uh, understanding, um, but above all, that we would meet you. Uh, so we turn this time over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as I said, uh, we're in uh, Exodus again. Uh, I invite you to keep your reading from Exodus open in front of you. Um, we'll be taking a look at basically what it means that God is with us. And so I think that's an expression that if we're familiar with it, we associate that with Christmas time, with Jesus coming to the world as a baby and all the events that surround that. In Jesus, God comes to us, to his people, uh, to his creation, and fixes what is wrong with the world. Um, that, that's one of the core beliefs of Christianity. But that event in history, uh, it's, it's not the first time God visits humanity. In fact, throughout the whole narrative, the whole story that we have in the Bible, God shows up in a lot of different places and in a number of different ways. The shorthand word that is used to describe God showing up in a distinct and striking way is glory. That word shows up in our reading this morning, and, and we're going to return to it in a moment. Now, I know that for some of us, all this talk of God visiting humanity sounds a lot like superstition or, or wishful thinking, um, or it's a nice way that some people cope with the world that we're in. It, it's sort of in the realm of, of fairy tales or ancient history. If that's you, um, that's fine. I'm glad, I'm glad you're here, and I hope, hope you'll stick with me and hear me out. Because um, to be honest, this talk of God with us is kind of strange when you really think about it. And what we're looking at this morning is that this event, uh, Jesus is God coming to us, it doesn't just come out of nowhere but it's in line with history. And it is a way in which we understand who God is. But whether you question the claims of Christianity um, or you embrace uh, this, this faith of following Jesus as your own, the idea of God being near to us or even God wanting to be near us 
doesn't quite fit into how we often make sense of reality. When, when you look at how you live your everyday life, um, waking up, going to work, eating dinner, meeting up with friends, um, hopefully there will be more of that um, as things are opening up, um, doing homework, uh, talking to your neighbors, like all those things and more. How does Jesus factor into that? It, it's, is it like there's a, a glitch in our operating system when Jesus shows up, like, like I think that's sometimes how, how we think about it, right? Um, Jesus shows up and, and we just want to like run the antivirus software and be rid of Jesus and God and just get back to whatever we're doing. Um, making money, we're building a career, fighting for a noble cause, um, chasing a dream, um, embracing an identity other than what I grew up with, like, like just fill in the blank. For some of us, that, that that's our reaction. Or for other of us, we might think, um, you know, if I can just delete this one thing, like this one program, this one thing out of my life, um, I can make room for God over there. Um, maybe I'll, I can rearrange a few things and now there's Jesus, there's room for the Jesus part of my life. Um, and that that's maybe it's right now, Sunday morning or, or something like that. Now, now, if you've been with us for a while, you've probably heard the book of Exodus referred to as kind of the operating system that the rest of the Bible runs on. It's hard to make sense of what the rest of make sense of the rest of what's going on without it. And if you're a Christian, the whole Bible basically forms our operating system. At least it should. Right? The, the, the story of scripture informs our view of reality and, and shapes what we do. And so for all of us, um, when we find that Jesus is disrupting the way our lives run, um, it's often that we need to go back to something like Exodus, and it's like we need to reinstall or upgrade the operating system. Um, I, I think the pandemic has been the major source of disruption for, for all of us, but I know that um, for each one of us, there's many more disruptions that are in your life today. Um, you know what those are. But in a sense, what we're going to do is, uh, what we're continuing to do this morning is we dive into Exodus 24 and 25, is we're reformatting um, our operating systems. We're, we're aligning it to, to what the story is in scripture and seeing how that informs and challenges how we see all of reality. So as we do that, we're gonna see four things. The first thing is that God wants to be near us. The second thing is that all of creation is actually made for that purpose. The third thing is there's a big problem. And the fourth thing is God provides a solution to that problem. So the first thing, um, God wants to be near us. How does that sense strike you? God wants to be near us. Um, for some of us, that's a really hard thing to believe, right? Maybe we picture a God who's all about punishment and judgment and fire and brimstone. And we think uh, God doesn't really want to be near us, or at least I don't want to be near a God like that, right? There's kind of a disconnect. Um, if you're with us last week, you'll remember that we picked back up the story of Exodus with God's people, Israel, camped out around Mount Sinai. God had raised up Moses as a leader for his people and dramatically led them out of slavery in Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army has been destroyed, and now Israel is faced with the question of, now what? How do we live out our freedom? What, what, what do we do now? 
God's provided for them food and water. Um, God's provided for them instructions on how to live well in this new reality that he's bringing them into. Um, he's given them the Ten Commandments and a whole host of other instructions. And now on Mount Sinai, we find God and Israel making a covenant with all the ceremony that surrounds such an event. There's sacrifices, there's blood, there's fire, and there's feasting. Um, they're in a sense, they're, they're binding themselves to each other. Um, like it's like a marriage ceremony. Almost. It's, and in the middle of all of this, um, there's the climactic moment where God's people eat a feast in the presence of God. What's striking about this, as we saw last week, is that this is the first time this has happened. Humans sitting down with God as his guests over a meal since the first chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis. It's a picture of the intimacy and security and provision that comes from God and humanity together in the world. This is what things are supposed to be like. Like This is supposed to form the center from which we rightly interact with and care for each other and the whole of creation. Now, right after this feast, Moses and his assistant Joshua go back up on the mountain with God, and, and they're going to get the hard copy of the law and the commandments that God has laid out for his people. Um, they're actually up there for quite a long time. Exodus 24, 18 tells us that they're up there for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a long enough time that the rest of the people of Israel will get into a whole lot of trouble while they're gone. Um, but we'll be looking at that. I think that's next week. Um, what I want us to focus on in Exodus 24, though, is that is the one word glory. Verse 16 tells us that the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And verse 17 tells us that this glory was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And somewhere in the middle of all of that are Moses and Joshua. Now, now glory is an important word. There, there's a pastor and author, um, Eugene Peterson, who describes glory in this way. You may have heard me say this before, um, quoting him. He says, Glory is a light-filled word spilling out the extravagant brightness that marks God's presence among us. It's also used to ascribe honor and dignity and weightiness to mountains and weather and men and women. But the most prominent use in our scriptures is in relation to God. So the honor, um, the dignity, the weightiness of God is on display here. And in a way, it's terrifying right? There, there's fire, there's, there's smoke, there's cloud, like it, it's strange. But turning to chapter 25, we find that what we find that uh, what on first glance seems to be a rather tedious list of building specifications and materials is deeply connected to God's glory and his desire to be with his people. The Lord speaks to Moses first about getting a collection of materials from the people for the purpose of building a sanctuary um, or a tabernacle, um, which uh, we're told in verse eight is so that God can dwell in their midst. What's happening here is that what happened up on Mount Sinai, God's people feasting in his presence and God's glory on display isn't a one-time event. God's presence isn't only meant to be only out there up on the mountaintop. It's supposed to come down into the people's camp and travel with them, um, lead them. And Israel, um, though they don't know it yet, but, but they're about to wander around in the desert for 40 years. But God's going to be with them. 
And so Moses is given instructions from the Lord to build this sort of mobile meeting place. It's sometimes called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And if we look closely at the instructions given, uh, we see a couple of important details. We can't go through all of those details. Uh, as, as Ed pointed out, like there's a lot in there. Um, but, uh, but after the, the, the instructions for gathering building materials, the next few set of instructions concern building the items that remain in the most holy inner part of the tabernacle. We start with what is called the Ark of the Covenant in verses 10 to 22. It's basically an elaborately constructed and decorated box that's to contain a copy of the Ten Commandments and the instructions for living that God is giving Moses. And on top of that box is what is called the mercy seat, um, or sometimes it's translated as, as the atonement cover. What this is, is essentially the space where God is. Um, the ark is kind of like a footstool, and above that space is where God is present. It's where his glory dwells. And we're told in verse 22 that this is where God will meet with the representative of the people. Um, and he'll continue to speak with them about the commandments for the people. It's an ongoing thing. He speaks with Moses. He speaks with the high priest. Um, so, so now what we have is uh, God's presence is with the ark. And then next in the instructions, we find instructions for building a table. And on that table, there's to be regularly set out what is called the bread of the presence in verse 30. Now, now, do you see something from the mountaintop here, right? We have God's presence, his glory with the ark, and we have a table that's set with food. We have an image of the feast in the presence of God. Now, now there's a third item that's set in this space. Um, our reading was quite long, and the whole description of what goes on in building the tabernacle goes on for a couple of chapters. Um, but there's another th uh, bit that comes after this that isn't in the reading, but uh, a third item that's set in that space uh, is a lampstand. Um, and it has many branches. It's decorated with almond blossoms and flowers. And its description kind of resembles a tree. That's also placed in this space. So we have all of these, these, these items of, of furniture uh, um, that are, are placed. And th this, this is leading me into my second point. And, and so I hope that we can see right now that the direction of this story is that God wants to be with his people. He wants to be with us. And there's all these elaborate preparations made for it. Now, my second point is that all of creation was made with this purpose in mind of God dwelling with his people, of people dwelling with God. Now, that's, that's a pretty bold claim. To see this, we need to think back to the beginning of the Bible, to the story of creation found in Genesis 1 and 2. So if you remember, um, I already referred to the first chapters of Genesis because that's where we first get this image of people eating together in harmony in the presence of God. Everything's pretty good there. Now, here's the thing about how the creation story is structured that's helpful for understanding our passage in Exodus. In the world of the Bible, there isn't a sacred secular divide like there is in our culture today. Everything has sort of a sacred element to it. Today, we might think that going into a church building is particularly sacred. Uh, it's a holy place, but going to a place like, like work, that's a purely secular place, and the two don't really overlap. But in the world as described by the Bible, the places of worship, 
were usually temples. And temples were like mini representations of the entire cosmos. So everything that was in a temple corresponded to a cosmic reality. So these temples basically told the story of how things were in how they were made and in how people interacted with them. So temple ceremonies in the ancient world usually lasted seven days. Uh, a temple was generally considered to be the very center of the cosmos from which all good things in society came from. So they'd often be built on a spring or, or something from which a river or rivers flowed out, symbolizing watering the whole earth. The sun and the moon and the stars often re represented gods, and, and there'd often be corresponding imagery with those things in ancient temples. Many ancient temple complexes had elaborate gardens in them. And in the middle of the temple, there'd be usually an idol that represented the God that's being worshiped. And then there would be priests, there's people who worked to take care of things. Now, I said I was talking about Genesis, right? So if we look at how Genesis one and two are written, we find that so much of the language being used to describe the creation of the heavens and the earth uses the language of describing a temple. It's telling us something about how, about the function for which God created everything. So in seven days, everything's created. The sun, the moon, and the stars are created as lights, but they aren't named, right? They don't correspond to gods to be worshiped. They're lights. They, they have a purpose in creation, but they're just lights. On the sixth day of a temple dedication ceremony, that's when you'd place an idol that's to be worshiped in the temple. But instead in Genesis, on the sixth day of creation, man and woman are created and placed in the garden as the image bearers of God. And then there's four rivers that flow throughout the whole garden of Eden, watering the whole earth. And so, so what we see here is that the entire cosmos is actually the sacred space that God is present in. And we're placed in that space to work it and care for it as God's representatives. The whole world is sacred space where God walks with humanity and they eat in his presence. There's good work to do and there's rest and there's recreation to enjoy, but it's all in the presence of God, all beholding his glory. Um, and, 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 and so all of creation is like this big temple garden. And so the tabernacle in Exodus is kind of like a portable temple, right? It's a portable representation of the entire cosmos as we see it described in Genesis. This, this, this strange temple garden combination. All right, so we're on Zoom um, and I'm taking advantage of Zoom. I don't know if this will ever happen again. Um, Hopefully it works. Um, if Jim lets me preach again, um, hopefully that, that'll, that'll be good. But um, many of you uh, know my youngest daughter, Julianne. Um, I think she's, uh, she's in the Riverside Park uh, group right now, but she just turned six last month. And for her birthday, she got a whole bunch of Lego. Uh, and she has given me permission to share with you one of her Lego sets. Okay, I believe it's called the Lego Friends Friendship Bus. This is it here. All right, so uh, this is a pretty epic bus. Um, it's amazing. If you look up, so I'm gonna try to do this. If you look in the roof here, 
there's a garden. Um, there's a tree, there's some carrots growing in the garden. This is not your average bus, okay? Not only does it have a garden growing out of the roof, um, it's got some, some beds um, where you can sleep in. If you open up the back here, there's a slide that goes right out the back of the bus, right? Looks like a lot of fun. Um, that's not everything with this bus. If you look on this side, you open up, let's see if I can do this. You open up the side doors and in the bottom here, if anyone can ever design this, um, they win, win the design prize. There's actually a swimming pool that comes out of the side of the bus. There's a, a life preserver here. You can go swimming. And then kind of the, my favorite part of this entire bus is the roof comes out and right in the center of this bus is a table, there's a kitchen, there's chairs. The whole center point of this entire mobile home, this motor home is a place where you can feast together. So I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, right? There's, there, there's a garden in the roof, there's a pool underneath, there's a slide. This is, this is a, a motor home that is just bursting with life. It's bursting with um, places that, that have fun. It's kind of a center of life and flourishing, okay? That's what I think of. So this is Clint's weird mind. Um, when I think about the tabernacle, it's this, it, this, is, this is where I go, right? Uh, think of God feasting in the middle of the tabernacle. Like, like that's the image that um, I'm giving you right now. So... The tabernacle is the center, this place of flourishing, but there's a problem um, that you may have noticed with the Lego friendship tabernacle. Um, it doesn't quite line up with the Bible tabernacle in Exodus, right? The thing is the tabernacle is not just a return to the harmony of the Garden of Eden in Genesis. If we look back at Exodus 25, we'll notice that when the instructions are being given for constructing the Ark of the Covenant in verse 18, it says, And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Ha of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. So, so remember the mercy seat is that place where God's glory is, where God's presence is. And cherubim are kind of an angelic being that are associated with the presence of God. They aren't, they, they aren't like the chubby cherubs that you think of at Valentine's Day, but, but rather they're like, they're kind of wild looking beings covered in wings and eyes all over. And they're, they're pretty intimidating. The first place they're found is actually in the book of Genesis after the creation account is over. At the end of Genesis 3, we find that things have taken a turn for the worse. Adam and Eve people created in the image of God and placed in the temple garden of creation have rejected the terms of living in harmony with God and chosen to forge their own path of determining what is right and wrong for themselves. That's one way the Bible talks about sin, right? The result is they're cut off from the presence of God, from the source of life and intimacy, and they're barred from the garden. And it says by a cherubim or by cherubim and a flaming sword. So if you'll notice um, that the friendship bus tabernacle was missing cherubim, good job, you picked up on it. Um, the cherubim are in the tabernacle at the mercy seat, pointing to the fact that there's a problem. 
sin breaks relationship with God. So, so there's this conundrum that we find even in the tabernacle, even with God in the midst of his people leading them, there's alienation and separation. Not just anybody can walk right into this most holy place and approach the presence of God. Now, there's a couple of more chapters in Exodus of instructions of how the tabernacle is to be constructed and how the priests are to be outfitted and how the whole operation of the tabernacle goes down. Um, we don't have time to go through all of that. Um, there's special sacrifices that are done once a year that are outlined in the book of Leviticus to allow the high priest to enter into the presence of God and make things right with God. At least it's temporarily made right with God. Um, it has to be repeated every year. But what I want to do with the time we have remaining this morning is to skip ahead to our second reading in John chapter 2 and look at how Jesus displays the glory of God in an unexpected way. Okay. Now, now Jesus does deal with the problem of sin alienating us from God. He does that ultimately by becoming the sacrifice for sin on the cross. That, that repairs that gap that exists, which we see in the tabernacle here, and allows us to experience that deep connection with God that we were made for, right? Because of what Jesus has done, we can behold the glory of God again through Jesus. Um, so, so Jesus um, actually um, displays the glory of God to us. We, we actually see this through his whole life. In the first chapter of John's gospel, just before our second reading, first chapter, John writes that Jesus, the word of God, came and dwelt among us. The word he uses there literally means Jesus tabernacled among us. He's the glory of God revealed again to his people in the midst of his people. So, so Jesus is, is revealing God's glory. And then if we go to cha John chapter 2 that, that, that we have in, in our bulletin, we find that Jesus is present at a wedding. It's one of the first things that's recorded uh, about what Jesus is doing. And th this event takes place just after John the Baptist has announced that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Right? This is, this is all sacrificial language, uh, temple language. Essentially, Jesus is that sacrifice that makes us right with God. Though at this point in John's storytelling, and nobody's really figured out that that's really what it means yet, right? Jesus hasn't really entered a public showing of what he's all about. And so right at this, this beginning point uh, of hearing about Jesus, we have this quirky incident at a family wedding that Jesus and his disciples happen to be at. Jesus's mother, Mary, is there. And there's this huge problem that pops up. Apparently, the wedding hosts have run out of wine. Now, depending on who you are, this may or may not seem like a big deal to you. But back then, a wedding could last days and days. And the hosts were legally bound to provide for their guests. Um, it was how they showed them honor, which is a big deal in, in that culture. Um, in certain circumstances, a guest could even sue um, if they were treated dishonorably, um, if they were slighted, right? So family honor is at stake here. It's a big deal. And so then we have this, this little conversation between mother and son, between Mary and Jesus. That's uh, just really, really human. 
Um, Mary knows Jesus is special, right? Like, so she had an angel appear to her and then she was pregnant. And then she was told basically that her son's going to save the world. Um, so she knows that, that something special is going to happen with this boy. Um, and she's no doubt heard or even seen that John the Baptist has declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. She knows something big is about to happen. And so, so like, like a good mom, she, she just drags her son right into the middle of things to fix it. All right. She tells Jesus, they, they have no wine, right? And, and Jesus looks at her. He doesn't call her mother or mom. Um, but, but, but he actually says, like, woman, what's this got to do with me? Right. It's not my time. And so, so Jesus, he's not disrespecting his mom, but in a way he's acknowledging that I'm not just your little boy anymore. I'm not just your son. I'm something more, right? But, 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 but it's also this shift where Jesus suddenly, his glory is going to start being revealed because he's God. And then, then Mary, she just does, it just, it's like this very Jewish mom thing to do. She just turns to the servants and is like, yeah, uh, just do, do, the, do, do what he tells you to do. Right. Like she probably doesn't know what Jesus is going to do, um, but she's his mom. And, and, you know, he's like, he'll take care of it. Like get, you just do, 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 do what he does, do, do what he says to do. Um, and so that sets up Jesus's first act of power. He changes these large vats of water into wine. And in doing so, he preserves the whole honor of the entire family. The only people who know what went on are the servants and his disciples, right? The wedding co coordinator, like, he doesn't know. The guests don't know. They just know that the best wine they've ever had has just been busted out, and, uh, and the party is great. And John tells us that this is the first time Jesus shows off his glory. It's not on a mountaintop with fire and clouds. It's in the middle of a wedding feast. It's in the middle of a very relatable interaction between mother and son. And here we find Jesus, God with us, displaying his glory in the most ordinary sort of place. It's not clouds and flame on the mountain. Jesus is God come to his people to dwell with them, to tabernacle with them. And Jesus continues to follow the pattern of God coming to his people to be with them right here in the midst, in the middle of the mess of everyday life. He shows off his glory in a wedding party that was about to go off the rails and about to be a disaster. So what does this mean for us? I have two quick things as we close. As a church congregation, like Emmanuel, like, like it's been a long stretch of not being able to meet together in person, right? It hasn't been strictly wandering in the wilderness, but it's been a disruption. Yet God is with us. Jesus is with us. Um, even this morning, he's with us. He'll continue to meet with us because that's who he is. Jesus, he is a, he's a, a God who pursues his people, um, especially when things are messy. And so it can be discouraging that we haven't been able to get together. It's been discouraging, like life just hasn't taken the turn that we thought it was. I don't think anybody thought that this last year and a bit was going to go like this. But 
Jesus is with us in this. Um, and even as we're, 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 we're figuring out how can we meet together in person, um, Jesus is still with us um, wherever we are, however this is going to be. The second thing is that Jesus will show up in unexpected places. Um, he will show up because there is no domain that does not belong to Jesus, right? The whole of creation is God's domain. Um, if Jesus restores the intimacy, the connection between God and humanity, and it's through him we're brought back to be able to feast in the presence of God, then we see that the vision of the Garden of Eden, it, it's being restored in Jesus. And we, we, we get foretastes of it here and now. Um, the, full, the full realization of that is going to be, we see it in the end of the book of Revelation, when God comes to earth and he makes all things new and we have the new creation and everything's good. But we, 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 but we have, have um, God with us here and now. And so, so what that means is that work and school and relationships with people and eating dinner, um, they're all parts of our life that Jesus cares about and is present with us in. And that means as we face the uncertainties that this pandemic has brought about, um, as we wrestle with issues of, of racial injustice and policing, of, of politics, of, of raising babies, of, of, of caring for sick relatives, of, of unemployment, Jesus is near to us. He's with us in that. Um, if only we can turn to him, um, we can see what he can do in those spaces. So, so my encouragement for you um, as we close is, is that God is with us. Jesus is with us. He sends us his spirit to be with us. We're not on our own in whatever we're going through. Jesus is with us um, and he's making all things new. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.